Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks for Wednesday, April 29th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and home of the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. I have enjoyed the month of April with you every morning, and perhaps you're catching later at YouTube or Spotify. My thanks to everyone at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation that makes this program available. Um, I wanted to say thank you to each and every one of you uh, that have joined us during the month of April. I know sometimes the programs maybe go a bit long with a long speech from Theodore Roosevelt and warning today will as well as we get a view of uh, what might have been a bit of Theodore Roosevelt uh, had he been a war president, uh, uh, but in 1916 criticizing Wilson for not being so. We're going to start with a couple of birthdays to acknowledge in reverse chronological order first. Born on this day, April 29th, 1872, in New York City, Harry Payne Whitney. Harry Payne Whitney, his father, was William Hollins Whitney. Not only uh, in his own right, a successful businessman, part of the uh, very well-established uh, and uh, very successful Whitney family of Massachusetts, Maine, in New York City, uh, William Collins Whitney uh, served as Secretary of the Navy in the second Cleveland administration. Amongst the ships built during that time, the USS Maine. And most uh, give good scores, and, and I think probably Theodore Roosevelt is, an, is a Navy man eventually serving as Assistant Secretary of the Navy some short years later, uh, that uh, he would have given high marks to William Collins Whitney. He's given credit for uh, making sure we had a domestic armor plate manufacturing uh, industry. Uh, supported by the United States Navy. Harry Payne Whitney is father to Flora Payne Whitney, namesake of his mother, uh, Flora Payne, and uh, uh, then uh, his daughter, Flora Payne Whitney, was engaged to Quentin Roosevelt at the time when Quentin Roosevelt died in France in 1918. Theodore Roosevelt had uh, all but uh, pleaded with the children, Flora and Quentin, to marry before he went to France. Uh, the rights of uh, having that at least that uh, one uh, uh, bright night of uh, passion uh, before uh, leaving, something in those uh, 
regards it, about as close as one might come to finding that uh, sort of issue of passion, passionate love written about by Theodore Roosevelt. Quentin and Flora, a delightful book left to us by uh, a, a wonderful fellow, Chip Bishop. Uh, it's not the only book, but the late Chip Bishop, a pride of Cape Cod, uh, Massachusetts, wrote. Uh, he also wrote uh, The Lion and the Journalist. Uh, that wonderful book is about uh, his relative, Joseph Buckland Bishop, a journalist and appointed by Theodore Roosevelt to be secretary of the Panama Canal Commission. Uh, it's a wonderful opening of this book, and you see if you get another, another good look. Clinton and Flora, and of course he in his World War I uniform, getting ready to head to, uh, to Europe. He opens with uh, Flora's uh, uh, debut, her, her debutante ball, uh, held in uh, uh, in uh, Providence, uh, and all sorts of fanciness going on there. And that uh, her escort that night was Quentin. Uh, she had just turned 19. Quentin would not be 19 until November of 1916. Uh, it had been his uh, freshman year, if I've got it right, that he concluded at Harvard. And uh, there's correspondence that shows that Flora, for about a year, was in a circle of friends with Quentin from New York City and Cambridge, Mass, during school. And then the correspondence goes on to become a bit more serious, uh, and their time together becomes a bit more intimate in the uh, months between uh, uh, that uh, debut in 1916 and Theodore uh, Roosevelt's son, Quentin, uh, heading, off to, uh, heading off to Europe in the war. One of the things that fascinates me uh, about this era and, and that I like to uh, explore connections, uh, Harry's brother, so uh, Flora's father, Harry Payne Whitney, his brother, William Payne Whitney, known as Payne Whitney, married Helen Hay. That's the daughter of Clara and John Hay. John Hay, Theodore Roosevelt, Secretary of State, private secretary to Lincoln so long ago and, and friend of Theodore Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt. So this uh, interconnection of these families, the uh, uh, indeed the uh, uh, the dominance that came over the American uh, political scene in great part from these uh, wealthy families of capital and uh, and manufacturing along the uh, New England seaboard and down through uh, New York and Philadelphia. Uh, this is a uh, part of the balance that Theodore tried to strike in the country. Uh, the influence and power of these wealthy capitalists and and the growing influence of the labor movement, or the need of the wage worker and the farmer to uh, uh, to gain in some of this uh, prosperity that was being built up in the country, and so uh, uh, it, it, it it sometimes in history is uh, I find it uh, fascinating. I, I love to hear others that know so much more than me to discuss what we might call the contrapositive, the what if in history. We often play the game of what if. Theodore Roosevelt had won the election of 1912 as the Bull Moose progressive candidate. Uh, we might posit what if he had lived uh, to see the 1920 election? What if Quentin Roosevelt had returned from World War I and married Flora Payne Whitney? Uh, uh, her father, Harry Payne Whitney, upon the death of his own father, inherited $24 million dollars. And upon the death, uh, that was in 1904, in 1917, when his uncle, uh, the uh, old naval uh, uh, hero Oliver Hazard Payne, died, another $12 million inherited. Uh, the accumulated wealth of the family uh, 
What if the combination of the wealth and influence of the Whitney family uh, had indeed then been uh, uh, been met with the uh, uh, political inheritance of the Roosevelt family? We always uh, read that Quentin Roosevelt, uh, dying so young, uh, that he himself uh, may have uh, had a political future in front of him. And what if that political future uh, involved uh, uh, having the wealth and influence of the Whitney family behind him? William Randolph Hearst, born this day, April 29, 1863. That makes him five years younger than Theodore Roosevelt. He goes on to live until 1951, 32 years beyond uh, Theodore Roosevelt. The uh, son of the uh, publisher of the San Francisco, San Francisco Examiner, when uh, Hearst made his way uh, uh, to uh, St. Paul's School in New Hampshire and then to Harvard uh, College in Cambridge, Mass., uh, well, he was uh, such a uh, fun-loving uh, prankster that uh, he was uh, uh, dismissed from his studies at Harvard. Getting back to San Francisco, he was given control over his father's newspaper, and uh, Hearst was able to uh, add to the uh, uh, chorale uh, 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 writers such as Ambrose Pierce, Mark Twain, Jack London, and the political cartoonist Homer Davenport. Hearst would uh, go on to uh, purchase the uh, New York uh, uh, Journal and then the, uh, the famous uh, battles between the Journal and uh, Pulitzer's uh, New York Herald uh, began. And uh, this penny paper war, this dive of yellow journalism where big, bold headlines and stories of scandal and crime. And, and uh, I don't know that it's the origin. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads. But there's, these uh, were uh, uh, the yellow newspapers associated with the uh, yellow and colored cartoons of the Sunday papers. Hearst, of course, uh, is uh, given some regard as uh, part of the instigation of our war with Spain over Cuba. His newspapers had been ginning up uh, uh, stories about uh, the suppression of the Cuban patriots since the 1895 onset of uh, uh, the Cuban Revolution in its most uh, immediate sense to Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Cuban patriots were touring the United States using New York as a headquarters, and Hearst was uh, amongst their most loyal supporters. Uh, but uh, uh, the truth and the exact details weren't always as important to Hearst as selling newspapers, perhaps. The, uh, uh, the uh, statement that uh, uh, the cartoonist, uh, the uh, illustrator, I'm sorry, Frederick Remington was in Cuba on behalf of Hearst, and that he wrote back that uh, there's no war here, and that Hearst replied by cable, uh, you send the pictures and I'll supply the war. And that's generally agreed to be apocryphal. Hearst was also a politician. Uh, formerly a Democrat and twice during Theodore Roosevelt's administration elected to the United States Congress, its House of Representatives from New York. But during that same time, uh, Hearst ran unsuccessfully for the presidency in 1904, unsuccessfully for uh, the mayorship of New York in 1905, and unsuccessfully, uh, uh, I believe, for the United States Senate as well. Uh, during that time period. Uh, Hearst uh, uh, is uh, an influential fellow in, in uh, American history and in great part for the fact uh, it was uh, actually mayor of New York City twice, 1905 and 1909, and for the governorship of New York in, in 1906. Um, Hearst 
is remembered perhaps by our generation most as, as being the sketch for uh, the uh, protagonist in Citizen Kane, the movie star starring Orson Welles. Interesting that that movie was made still while Hearst was extremely influential. Though he had been an early supporter of Franklin Roosevelt, uh, he broke with Roosevelt and his Hearst newspaper empire, which included magazines of all sorts, some of the most famous magazines in the United States. Uh, Hearst was uh, relentless in his attacks of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, from another wonderful resource and something I might recommend to, uh, to you out there, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's History of the United States by Daniel Ruddy. Uh, it's a, a wonderful compendium of things that Theodore Roosevelt wrote. Very often here at Teddy Talks, I'll be sourcing speeches by Theodore Roosevelt, state papers by Theodore Roosevelt, sometimes augmented by the statements he made in private letters. All of this that he wrote about the William Randolph Hearst that I'll read briefly uh, is, uh, uh, is are from uh, private letters uh, that uh, uh, Mr. Ruddy has brilliantly uh, uh, put together uh, uh, in his compendium, uh, extremely well footnoted uh, throughout so these statements about Hearst come from about a half a dozen different letters dating from 1899 through some of the later years of Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. So a little bit about uh, William Randolph Hearst and the viewpoint of Theodore Roosevelt. It is a little difficult for me to give you an exact historic judgment about a man whom I so thoroughly dislike and despise as I do Hearst. I think that he is a man without any real principle that though he is posing as a radical, he is in reality no more radical than he is conservative. But when I have said this, after all, I am not at all sure that I am saying much more about Hearst than could be probably said, or which should contain a large amount of truth, if said, about both Winston Churchill and his father, Lord Randolph. I have been tempted at times to smash into that leprous spot upon our civilization Hearst, New York Journal, journal, by way of a heavy libel suit, criminal or civil, but it has been a question with me if they would not gain by the advertisement. Of course, all they would care for would be the pecuniary loss. Hearst and Brisbane are engaged in carrying on their profession on terms which make the trades of the pimp and the panderer seem respectable by comparison, and there is no good in any argument that does not touch either their pockets or their hides. Hearst's private life has been disreputable. He is now married, and as far as I know, entirely respectable. His wife is a chorus girl, or something like that, on the stage. And it is, of course, neither necessary nor advisable, in my judgment, to make any allusion to any of the reports about either of them before their marriage. It is not the kind of family which people who believe that sound home relations form the basis of national citizenship would be glad to see in the executive mansion in Albany and still less in the White House. Hearst has edited a large number of very of the very worst type of sensational, scandal-mongering newspapers. They have been edited with great ability and with entire unscrupulousness. The editorials are well written and often appeal for high morality in the abstract. Moreover, being a fearless man and shrewd and far-sighted, Hearst has often been of real use in attacking abuses which benefited great corporations and in attacking individuals of great wealth who have done what was wrong. In these matters, he has often led the way. I disapprove of the whitewash brush quite as much as of mudslinging. 
and it seems to me that the disapproval of one in no shape or way implies approval of the other. He will never attack any abuse, any wickedness, any corruption, not even if it takes the most horrible form unless he is satisfied that no votes are to be lost by doing it. He preaches the gospel of envy, hatred, and unrest. His actions so far go to show that he is entirely willing to sanction any mob violence if he thinks that for the moment votes are to be gained by doing so. He, of course, cares nothing whatever as to the results to the nation in the long run of embroiling it with any foreign powers if for the moment he can gain any applause for so doing. He cares nothing for the nation nor for any citizens in it. If the circumstances were ripe in America, which they are not, I should think that Hearst would aspire to play the part of some of the least worthy creatures of the French Revolution. There is, I believe, literally nothing at which he would not stop in the way of adding fuel to the fire of discontent, reasonable and unreasonable, innocent or fraught with destruction of the whole body politic. He is the most potent single influence for evil we have in our life. I certainly feel that neither Tweed nor Benedict Arnold began to do as much damage to this country as Hearst has done. And of course, the reference uh, uh, in the end there to Boss Tweed of, uh, of the New York Tammany Hall. We're going to uh, soldier on that strong language about William Randolph Hearst. In case we drop off, I'm going to have a brief speech given in St. Louis in 1903 uh, to the National and International Good Roads Convention. Uh, and uh, then, at length and hopefully through to its end, uh, a longer speech given in 1916, National Duty and International Ideas, uh, a speech of Theodore Roosevelt before the Illinois Bar Association at Chicago, April 29, 1916. If we have any young students with us, of course, the Bar Association has nothing to do at all with taverns. These are the members uh, admitted to the Bar to practice law in the state of Illinois. Programs to conclude the week tomorrow, Friday, May 1st, a sampling of Theodore Roosevelt's writings or speeches, ranging from a report given by the uh, Commissioner of Civil Service, Theodore Roosevelt, in 1891 to Congress, uh, to some uh, speeches and publications, a publication in 1900 in the magazine, St. Nicholas Magazine, about the American boy, uh, and of course, uh, uh, some presidential uh, statements, and, and then a salute to Admiral George Dewey, uh, he, the hero of Manila Bay, uh, and in that 1904 Democratic uh, contest that produced the uh, candidate Alton B. Parker from New York to run against Theodore Roosevelt sitting in the White House, it was, uh, of course, William Randolph Hearst uh, and Admiral George Dewey uh, who attempted to secure that nomination of the Democratic Party in 1904. Saturday, May 2nd, remarks to the graduating class of the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis and comments to the Sons of the American Revolution. Expect a great deal of patriotic uh, uh, messaging from Theodore Roosevelt on Saturday, May 2nd. So tomorrow concludes our 26 days with the 26th president during the month of April. Uh, well, one of the issues we're going to confront during the month of May, I believe, is that we'll have more and more people coming out to Medora uh, I want you to know that right now we have uh, a number of people who come to work for the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation for the National Park Service. Uh, and according to the, uh, uh, to the uh, uh, promulgations of the governor, uh, those of our employees who are coming from out of state, they're quarantined for two weeks. 
before they have uh, their interactions with the public. And we're doing everything we can to uh, start smart or restart smart, as the case may be. Uh, on May 1st, uh, perhaps in the spirit of uh, Dewey and the Navy's heroism in Manila Bay, uh, 1898, on May 1st, uh, his command, you may fire when ready, Ridley. Well, out at the Bully Pulpit Golf Course, they will fire when ready at the golf driving range and out on the course. That Bully Pulpit Golf Course is such that the, uh, the twosomes and foursomes can go out and play the game of golf, and I think do so quite safely. Uh, and then uh, we'll have the Rough Riders Hotel uh, open that evening. Not Theodore's Restaurant, I'm afraid, but you'll be able to get some uh, carry-out curbside from the uh, uh, Pizza Saloon uh, that is uh, across the way from the, uh, the hotel. Uh, others of the uh, businesses will likely come online during the month of May, and eventually we are going to have a wonderful summer here in Medora. Again, remember the National Park, uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, is closed for right now through uh, an opening on May 9th, and uh, we do hope that when the park opens, uh, people will come and enjoy themselves, and again, loose in a way that doesn't overwhelm the park or uh, the town's ability to uh, respond to your needs. Uh, your need now is to get on with your day, perhaps get a little dose of Theodore Roosevelt in its early start. And so, if I may, I'll conclude with uh, two speeches, one brief, uh, the other longer. Uh, this is uh, to take uh, up those who might have been along for the ride in uh, uh, yesterday, the uh, ride through Iowa, the, the whistle stop on the train, uh, running all the way from Shenandoah in the west to, uh, was it, uh, 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 a in the east. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt the next day would start with a speech in Keokuk, Iowa, and then Quincy, Illinois. At St. Louis University, uh, he acknowledged the, the presence of Cardinal Gibbons of the Catholic Church, the Catholic prelate in the United States, uh, during his career, if not at that time. And then at the Odeon Hall in St. Louis, before the National and International Good Roads Commission, the following remarks. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, when we wish to use descriptive terms fit to characterize great empires, and the men who made those empires great, invariably one of the terms used is to signify that empire built good roads. When we speak of the Romans, we speak of them as rulers, as conquerors, as administrators, as road builders. There were empires that rose overnight and fell overnight, empires whose influence was absolutely evanescent, which have passed away without leaving a trace of their former existence but wherever the Roman established his rule, the traces of that rule remain deep today, stamped on the language and the customs of the people, or stamped in tangible form upon the soil itself. And so passing through Britain, 15 centuries and over after the dominion of Rome passed away, the Roman roads as features still remain. Going through Italy, where power after power has ridden, risen and flourished and vanished, since the days when the temporal dominion of the Roman emperors transferred its seat from Rome to Byzantium, going through Italy after the Lombard, the Goth, the Byzantine, and all the people of the Middle Ages that have ruled that country, it is the imperishable Roman road that reappears. The faculty, the art, the habit of road building marks in a nation those solid, stable qualities which tell for permanent greatness. Merely from the standpoint of historic analogy, we should have a right to ask that this people which has tamed a continent, which has built up a country with a continent for its base, 
which boasts itself with truth as the mightiest republic that the world has ever seen, which I firmly believe will in the century now opening rise to a position of headship and leadership such as no other nation has ever yet attained merely from historic analogy, I say we should have a right to demand that such a nation build good roads. Much more have we the right to demand it from the practical standpoint. The great difference between the semi-barbarism of the Middle Ages and the civilization which succeeded it was the difference between poor and good means of communication. And we, to whom space is less of an obstacle than ever it was in the history of any other nation, we who have spanned a continent, who have thrust our border westward in the course of a century and a quarter until it has gone from the Atlantic to the Alleghenies, from the Alleghenies down into the valley of the Mississippi, across the Great Plains, over the Rockies, to where the Golden Gate lets through the long heaving waters of the Pacific, and finally to Alaska, to the Arctic regions, to the tropic islands of the sea, we who take so little account of mere space must see to it that the best means of nullifying the existence of space are at our command. Of course, during the last century, there has been an altogether phenomenal growth of one kind of road wholly unknown to the people of an earlier period, the Iron Road. The railroad is, of course, something purely modern. A great many excellent people have proceeded upon the assumption that somehow or other having good railways should be a substitute for having good highways, good ordinary roads. A more untenable position cannot be imagined. What the railway does is to develop the country, and of course its development implies that the developed country will need more and better roads. A few years, years ago, it was a matter of humiliation that there should be so little attention paid to our roads that there should be a willingness not merely to refrain from making good roads, but to let the roads that were in existence become worse. I cannot too heartily congratulate our people upon the existence of a body such as this, ramifying into every section of the country, having its connections in every state of the country, and bent, bent upon that eminently proper work of making the conditions of life easier and better for the people whom all of whom all others that we can least afford to see grow discontented with their lot in life, the people who live in the country districts. The extraordinary, the wholly unheard of rate of our industrial development during the past 75 years, together with the good sides, has had some evil sides. It is a fine thing to see our cities built up, but not at the expense of the country districts. The healthy thing to see is the building up of both the country and city go hand in hand. But we cannot expect the ablest, the most eager, the most ambitious young men to stay in the country, to stay on the farm, unless they have certain advantages. If the farm life is a life of isolation, a life in which it is a matter of great and real difficulty for one man to communicate with his neighbor, you can rest assured that there will be a tendency to leave it on the part of those very people whom we should most wish to see stay in it. It is a good thing to encourage in every way any tendency which will tend to check an unhealthy flow from the country to the city. There are several such tendencies in evidence at present. The growth of electricity as a means of transportation tends to a certain degree to exercise a centrifugal force to offset the centripetal force of steam. Exactly as steam and electricity have tended to gather men in masses, so now electricity as applied to the purposes which steam has so long claimed as exclusively its own, 
tends again to scatter out the masses. The trolley lines that go out into the country are doing a great deal to render it more possible to live in the country, and yet not to lose wholly the advantages of the town. The telephone is not to be minimized as an instrument with a tendency in the same direction, and rural free delivery is playing its part along the same lines. But no one thing can do more to offset the tendency toward an unhealthy growth from the country into the city than the making and keeping of good roads. They are needed for the sake of their effect upon the industrial conditions of the country districts, and I am all, almost tempted to say they are needed for the sake of social conditions in the country district. If winter means to the average farmer the existence of a long line of liquid morasses through which he is to move his goods if bent on business, or to wade and swim bent on pleasure, if winter means that after an ordinary rain the farmer boy or girl cannot use his or her bicycle, if a little heavy weather means a stoppage of all communication, not only with industrial centers, but with the neighbors, you must expect that there will be a great many young people of both sexes who will not find farm life attractive. It is for this reason that I feel the work you are doing is so preeminently one in the interest of the nation as a whole. I congratulate you upon the fact that you are doing it. In our American life, it would be hard to overestimate the amount of good that has been accomplished by associations of individuals who have gathered together to work for a common object which was to be of benefit to the community as a whole. And among all the excellent objects for which men and women combine to work today, there are few indeed which have a better right to command the energies of those engaged in the movement and the hearty sympathy and support of those outside in this movement in which you are engaged. What I really uh, appreciate about having uh, found this uh, speech and, and brought it to you today is that part of Theodore Roosevelt's uh, primary justification for roads, if the, if the railroads and their spurs have all connected us and helped to the development of the countryside, and then these products are feeding back into the railroads, that it's the, the roads through the country districts, as he calls them, that improve the quality of life in the country districts that will keep the young people and, and the brightest and ablest of those young people out in the country districts. In uh, another decade, you'll find that uh, something, uh, uh, so you've got uh, US Highway 2 that runs from the Atlantic to the Pacific and runs right through the northern tier and, and uh, the north end of North Dakota. Well, that US Highway 2, uh, after Theodore Roosevelt's death in the early 1920s, was combined to uh, call itself the Theodore Roosevelt Memorial uh, military highway. Uh, the uh, uh, the justification for the spending of federal dollars was in part our ability to, to move our military units across the country and to do so in a, a speedy fashion. Uh, of course, the uh, interstate uh, projects, uh, uh, General Eisenhower, uh, that was a great deal seen from the perspective of defense, being able to move our military units uh, across the country if need be. Uh, but uh, I find it interesting that Theodore Roosevelt calls uh, for the support of this road building in part to increase the quality of life in the countryside. Well, again, you've been uh, most kind and patient to come along for the ride. Uh, this is a, a longer speech. Uh, if you'd like to listen to today's uh, uh, program in two parts, you're certainly welcome to do so, in part because of our friends from the Medora Foundation, uh, with whom I will work to see if we can make sure that we've got a, a good, capable uh, connection with you uh, each day proceeding as I think our usage of the internet increases now with more people coming out from the door.
1916, April 29 of 1916, the sinking of the uh, Lusitania is a year in the past. The declaration of war uh, against Germany is a year in the future. This speech made in 1916 is made at a time when the Progressive Party is uh, still planning to organize and nominate candidates in 1916. They will indeed nominate a, uh, a ticket of Theodore Roosevelt and Colonel John Parker, the Democrat from Louisiana, one of Teddy's hunting companions and an officer of, uh, well, I back off on that. Uh, and then uh, in July of 1916, the Progressive Party uh, published uh, its record, including statements and speeches of Theodore Roosevelt. And, and so it's from their published uh, version of his remark that I speak. Would Theodore Roosevelt have accepted the Republican and Progressive combined nominations in 1916? He probably would have, but there was such ill feeling about what Theodore Roosevelt had done to the Republican Party, he and his Progressive supporters in 1912, that it, it certainly wasn't to be. And so the same day that Theodore Roosevelt endorsed the Republican nominee, Charles Evans Hughes of New York, uh, he turned down uh, the nomination of the Progressive Party and it struck the death knell of the Progressive Party. They had a bit of representation in Congress, a bit of representation uh, across uh, uh, legislative state houses and other statewide positions across the country that uh, would uh, uh, really be a, a bit of a... Uh, a bit of an echo uh, in American history uh, uh, in the years to follow. So in 1916, I'll conclude with these longer remarks and hope to see you here at Teddy Talks tomorrow, uh, our, uh, our last day of April. Speech of Theodore Roosevelt before the Illinois Bar Association in Chicago, April 29th, 1916. A year and three quarters have passed since the opening of the Great War. At the outset, our people were stunned by the vastness and terror of the crisis. We had been assured by many complacent persons that the day of great wars had ended, that the reign of violence was over, that the enlightened public opinion of the world would prevent the oppression of weak nations. To be sure, there was ample proof that none of these assurances were true, and far-seeing men did not believe them. But there was good excuse for the mass of the people being misled. Now, however, there is none. War has been waged on a more colossal scale than ever before in the world's history, and cynical indifference to international morality and willingness to trample on inoffensive, peace-loving peoples who are also helpless or timid have been shown on a greater scale than since the close of the Napoleonic Wars over a century ago. Alone of the great powers, we have not been drawn into this struggle. A twofold duty was imposed upon us by the fact of our prosperity and by the fact of our momentary immunity from danger. This twofold duty was, first, to make our voice felt for the weak who had been wronged by the strong, and for the international humanity and honor, and for the peace on terms of justice for all concerned. And second, immediately and in thoroughgoing fashion, to prepare ourselves so that there might not befall us on an even greater scale such a disaster as befell Belgium. We have signally failed in both duties. Incredible to relate, we are not in any substantial respect stronger at this moment in soldiers or rifles, in seamen or ships, because of any governmental action taken in consequence of this war. And moreover, we have seen every device 
and provision designed by humanitarians to protect international right against international wrongdoings torn into shreds and have not so much as ventured to speak effectively one word of protest. The result is that every nation in the world now realizes our weakness, and that no nation in the world believes either in our disinterestedness or our manliness. The effort to placate outside nations by being neutral between right and wrong, and to gain goodwill along professional pacifist lines by remaining helpless for self-defense, has resulted after two fatuous years in so shaping affairs that the nations either already feel or are rapidly growing to feel for us not only dislike, but contempt. This is not a pleasant truth, but it is the truth. And as a people, we will do well to remember Emerson's saying that in the long run, the most unpleasant truth is a safer traveling companion than the pleasantest falsehood. Our duty is to face the facts and then to take the thoroughgoing action necessary in order to meet the situation that these facts disclose. Our prime duty, infinitely our most important duty, is the duty of preparedness. Unless we prepare in advance, we cannot, when the crisis comes, be true to ourselves. If we cannot be true to ourselves, it is absolutely certain that we shall be false to everyone else. If we are not able to safeguard our own national honor and interest, we shall make ourselves an object of scorn and derision if we try to stand up for the rights of others. We have been sinking into the position of the China of the Occident, and we will do well to remember that China, pacifist China, has not only been helpless to keep its own territory from spoliation and from oh, its own people from subjugation, but it has also been helpless to exert even the most minute degree of influence on behalf of right-dealing among other nations. There are persons in this country who openly advocate our taking the position that China holds, the position from which the best and wisest Chinamen are now painfully trying to raise their land. Nothing that I can say will influence the men and women who take this view. The holding of such a view is entirely incompatible with the right to exercise the privilege of self-government in a democracy. For self-government cannot permanently exist among peoples incapable of self-defense. But I believe that the great majority of my fellow countrymen, when they finally take the trouble to think on the problem at all, will refuse to consent to or acquiesce to the Chinification of this country. I believe that they will refuse to follow those who would make right helpless before might, who would put a pigtail on Uncle Sam and turn the goddess of liberty into a pacifist female huckster, clutching a bag of dollars which she has not the courage to guard against aggression. It is to these men and women that I speak. I speak to the mass of my fellow countrymen. I speak to all men and women who are loyal to the principles of those who in the Revolutionary War made us a nation, and who have in their souls the high qualities possessed by the men who in the iron days of the Civil War followed the banners of Grant and of Lee, and of the mothers and wives of these men. My appeal may not be heeded. If so, then either our people will pay heed in time to the appeal of some other man, able to speak more strongly and more convincingly, or else they will, when it is too late to learn the lesson from some terrible gospel in which it is written by an alien conqueror in letters of steel and of flame. 
The first necessity is that we shall in good faith, without reservation, undertake to be a nation and not merely to call ourselves a nation. I make my especial appeal to the national spirit here in Chicago, here in the great Middle West, here in the territory stretching from the Alleghenies to the Rockies. The prophets of gloom have said that the West, prosperous and indifferent, secure in her fancied safety because she is in the middle of the continent, cares nothing for the dangers that might befall the cities on the Atlantic or the Pacific coast, cares nothing for what has befallen the dwellers along the Mexican boundary, and is as indifferent to what befalls elsewhere as Peking was uh, to what befell its outlying Chinese provinces, to the ultimate ruin of Peking, by the way. This I do not for one moment believe. If I did, I should despair of the Republic. This is to a peculiar degree the democratic, the intensely, and characteristically American section of our land. The West produced for the service of the whole nation Abraham Lincoln and Andrew Jackson, and I know that their spirit is still the spirit of her sons. I appeal to the men of the West to take the lead in the movement for the genuine nationalization of our people. If the Republic founded by Washington and saved by Lincoln is to be turned into a mere polyglot boarding house where dollar hunters of 20 different nationalities scramble for gain, each nationality bearing no real allegiance except to the land from which it originally came, then we may as well make up our minds that the great experiment of democratic government on this continent will have failed. No less will it have failed if each section thinks only of the welfare of that section, and with crass blindness believes that disaster to some other section will not affect it. And the failure will be the greatest of all if foolish men are persuaded by wicked men that one caste or class is the prime enemy of some other class or caste. I appeal to the men of the East to prepare so that the men of the Pacific Slope shall be free from all menace of danger. I appeal to the men of the West to prepare so that the men of the Atlantic coast shall be free from all danger. I appeal to the North, South, West, and East alike to hold the life of every man and the honor of every woman on the most remote branch on the Mexican border is a sacred trust to be guaranteed by the might of our entire nation and the life of every man, woman, and child who should be protected by the United States on the high seas, likewise. I appeal to every good American, whether farmer or merchant, businessman or professional man, whether he works with brain or hand, anything of disgrace or dishonor that befalls our people anywhere is a vital moment to all of us, wherever we live. And any deed that reflects credit on the American name is a subject of congratulation for every American of every section of this country. I speak of the United States as a whole. Surely it ought to be unnecessary to say that it spells as absolute ruin to permit, to permit divisions among our people along the lines of creed or of national origin, as it does to permit division by geographical section. We must not stand merely for America first. We must stand for America first and last, and for no other nation second, except as we stand for fair play for all nations. There can be no divided loyalty in this country. The man who tries to be loyal to this country and also to some other country, is certain in the end to put his loyalty to the other country ahead of his loyalty to this. The political racial hyphen 
is the breeder of moral treason. We are a new nation by blood akin to but different from all the nations of Europe. In the veins of our people runs the blood of German, Englishmen and Irishmen, of Scandinavian, Slav and Latin. Any one of these people can bring something of value to our common national life. Each can contribute social and cultural traditions and customs of value, and all must join in cordial mutuality of respect for whatever is valuable that each brings. But each must put the contribution at the service of our common and unified citizenship, and by utilizing all that is thus contributed, and by adapting and developing it so that it shall meet and express our common needs, we shall build our own distinctive national culture. There is no room in this country for German Americans, or English Americans, Irish Americans, or French Americans, just as there is no room in this country for a political party based upon fealty or opposition to any particular creed, whether Protestant, Catholic, or Jew. There is just one way to be a good citizen of the United States, and that is to be an American and nothing else. This is not a question of birthplace, or national origin, or creed. Any big group of loyal and patriotic Americans will include men of many creeds and many different race strains and birthplaces, but they will not be loyal and patriotic Americans at all unless they are Americans and nothing else. The first step in preparedness is dependent upon our common and exclusive American nationality. Preparedness must be both of the soul and of the body. It must be not only military, but industrial and social. There can be no efficient preparedness against war unless there is in time of peace, economic and spiritual preparedness in the things of peace. Well-meaning men continually forget this interdependence. Well-meaning men continually speak as if efficient military preparedness could be achieved out of industrial and social chaos, where such military preparedness would represent merely a muscular arm on a withered body. Other well-meaning people speak as if industrial preparedness, social preparedness, would by itself solve the problem. This is worse folly than the first. Let these men look at Belgium and compare her fate with that of Switzerland. Belgium was one of the countries in Europe in which the greatest advance had been made in industrial efficiency, and as regards social justice, she was at least well ahead of us. But there had been no corresponding military preparedness. There had been great success along the lines of business materialism, great success along the lines of humanitarianism, but no development of military efficiency. The result is that both the materialist and the humanitarian have been ground into the dust together, simply because the men so successful in peace had not in peace trained themselves so as to be able to defend themselves in war and to make other nations realize in advance that they were able to do so. If our people are not willing to study the lessons of history, let them, let them look at what has gone on before their eyes in China. For centuries, China has looked down on the military caste and has discouraged the development of the fighting spirit. The vagaries and dreams and blindness of her pacifist leaders and pacifist statesmen have paralleled those of our own. Her people have been peaceful and industrious. They have put peace above honor, above justice, above national self-respect. As a consequence, China, 
the most populous empire on Earth, sees half her territory under the control of alien powers, and in the remainder holds what precarious independence remains at the mercy of whichever one of these alien powers for the time being able to nullify the influence of the others. If the short-sighted pacifist and the short-sighted materialist have their way, the same fate will overtake us, and it would be hastened, not averted, by business prosperity and efficiency and harmlessness. To mobilize our resources and introduce efficiency everywhere in business would merely make us a more attractive and a more helpless prey, unless we in similar fashion develop our power and purpose for self-defense. I stand heartily for protection. By that I mean not only protection to American industries and to the material interests of American workingmen, farmers, and businessmen, I also mean, and with even greater emphasis, protection for the whole American nation, protection for American honor, protection for America's self-respect, protection for America's position among the nations, protection for her when she strives, as she ought to strive, to bring peace to the rest of the world. And there can be no such protection without thoroughgoing preparation, military, social, and industrial. I have before used the effect of non-preparedness on China as an argument for preparedness. Really, the events of the last 21 months, including especially the events of the last month, show that no argument is needed save our own history during these past 21 months. On August 1st, 1914, the Great War began, and it had already become clear that the already dreadful situation in Mexico was going steadily from bad to worse. It should have been perceptible to any nation, and it is not to our credit as a nation that it was not evident to us that there was the gravest danger of our being involved at some point with the European belligerents and the almost certainty that we would have to take action sooner or later as regards Mexico. Even the first weeks of the Great War made it evident that the prime factor in success in war was preparedness in advance, and that it was impossible adequately to prepare after war had begun. Yet our well-meaning, foolish, peace-at-any-price people clamored so loudly that we must not prepare because preparedness would increase the chance of war that we followed their advice. Six months went by without one particle of preparation by us. Our army and navy remained as weak as ever. Nothing of any sort was done to help put our industries in shape to help us in the event of war. The professional pacifists hailed this refusal to exercise precaution in the face of the hurricane as an evidence of virtue on our part. It was merely an evidence of blind and timid weakness. Then, after six months, Germany announced that she would conduct a submarine blockade of England under circumstances which rendered inevitable the loss of American lives. We sent her an ultimatum, announcing that in such case we would hold her to a strict accountability. I use the word ultimatum, for it is the only word to describe the document containing the words strict accountability if these words mean anything. When we took that action, we placed ourselves in a position where it became a crime against ourselves, not immediately to prepare. Fourteen months have passed since. Germany has again and again done what she said she would not do. We have protested, sometimes strongly, sometimes weakly, against what has been done, but we never took a single step in the way of pre preparation to enforce our words if unhappily it should become necessary to do so. At present, we have sent another ultimatum to Germany, 
no stronger than the one sent 14 months ago. But the circumstances of its delivery are such as to seem to indicate that more weight must be attached to it. Yet we are still not preparing in any way. The lower house of Congress has taken what measures it could to interfere with the organizations on which we should have to rely in any belated and hurried efforts to meet our needs, should we have to act in support of our note, and has passed legislation excellently designed to prevent all efficiency from the military standpoint. Substantially, we are not in the smallest degree better prepared in the Army or in the Navy than we were 21 months ago. And instead of endeavoring to secure industrial preparedness, Congress has done everything it could to interfere with it. At this moment, after nearly six months of effort, we have been unable to scrape together an army sufficient to capture the bandit Pancho Villa. We have not an efficient body of troops of a size that would make it a tangible asset in the huge death wrestle that is going on around Verdun. We have not in these 21 months prepared in any shape or way to make good on any field of action any demand which might we might make for our own rights or the rights of humanity. Our words have been like a check issued by a man on a bank in which he has no funds, but expects that somehow or other he will get them by the time the check comes around. Rarely indeed does such a man have the funds there on time, and desperately humiliating indeed are his experiences meanwhile. If we meant what we said, in our strict accountability note 14 months ago, then we have followed a policy both wicked and cruel in its neglect of the lives of our men, women, and children by deliberately refusing to follow up any program of preparedness, whether in our army or navy or our industries. Now, if under these circumstances war does come, all of the men who think as I do will stand promptly by the country. We will go to the war, but we shall expect to pay a heavy penalty with our own blood and the blood of those dearest to us for the failure to prepare during the past 21 months. What I ask now of our professional peace at any price friends of the professional pacifists is that they get clearly in mind the fact that the preparedness I, whom they call a militarist, have unceasingly advocated for so many years and above all the preparedness that I have advocated with all my strength since the Great War began, would in all probability have averted all need of our sending the strict accountability note 14 months ago. If now there is no war, it will be proof positive that if 14 months ago we had made it evident that we meant what we said, Germany would have abandoned her submarine policy in the lives of thousands of non-combatants, including many hundreds of women and children would have been saved so that their blood is at our doors because we failed when we sent that note to show that we meant what we said. If on the other hand, war does come, it will be a cruel and a dreadful thing that having had the amplest opportunity and time to prepare for it on the larger scale, we drifted into it stern foremost having shown ourselves helplessly unable to provide in the smallest degree to make our vast strength effective. We need, beyond everything else, a first-class Navy. We cannot possibly get it unless the naval program is handled with steady wisdom from the standpoint of a nation that accepts the upbuilding and upkeep of such a Navy as cardinal points of continuous policy. There should be no party division along these lines, 
a party which, whatever its views are on other subjects, stops the upbuilding of the Navy or lets it be impaired in efficiency, should be accepted as false to the vital interests of the American people. The Navy should be trained in deep water, in salt water, and it should be trained always with one end in view to increase its fighting efficiency. It is not an educational institution. It is Uncle Sam's right arm of defense, and that arm is meant to hold the sword and not the pen. The minute the effort is made to turn a battleship into an ambulatory schoolhouse, we spoil the battleship without getting the schoolhouse. The minute we fail to treat the Navy as the one most vitally important international asset of the nation, which is, it is imperatively necessary to keep to the highest standard of efficiency, disregarding all other matters in connection therewith, that very minute we lay the seeds for the conditions which result in submarines that cannot go underwater and aeroplanes that do not fly. The Navy is by no means all sufficient, but the special part it plays is of more importance even than the very important parts to be played by other parts. It is a prime necessity for any great nation which expects to be taken seriously always to correlate policy and armament. There never should be a treaty made or a policy announced save after careful consideration whether our prepared strength is sufficient to make the treaty respected or that policy observed. The Monroe Doctrine will never be one particle stronger than the Navy. Our hold on the canal our power of protecting our own citizens abroad and defending our own coasts. All these depend upon other considerations also, but among the various vital factors, none of which can be neglected, the Navy stands foremost. The Navy stands foremost. But to rely only on the Navy would be as foolish as in a battle to rely only upon infantry, only upon artillery, or only upon trench digging. Back of the Navy must stand the regular army, and back of the regular army must stand the trained strength of the nation. The regular army is indispensable. Here again, gentlemen, let me ask you to do your part in seeing that our people understand the utter folly of embarking on a policy unless we have the means to enforce that policy. A treaty has recently been proposed by the government authorities of Washington under which we would guarantee the territorial integrity of all the South American republics, with as a quid pro quo the assurance these republics, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Ecuador, for instance, that they will guarantee our territorial integrity. Translate this into terms of fact. If the treaty does not mean what it purports to mean, it is insincere and worse. If it does mean what it purports to mean, then we are to guarantee that we will go to war to defend, say, Tierra del Fuego on behalf of somebody else. Yet the upholders of this proposal, in the same breath, announce that we are not to go to war for our own rights or our own citizens. It is possible to defend either proposition with sincerity, although not with wisdom. But it is not possible to defend both propositions with either sincerity or wisdom. Well-meaning people propose that we shall enter into an international league to enforce peace by making treaties under which we would pledge ourselves if, for instance, Belgium were invaded to back Belgium in war by the two or three million men without whom our unsupported backing would amount to little. Before going into any more grandiose promises, let us keep the moderate promises we made in the Hague Conventions. 
before we promise action on behalf of others, which might necessitate an army of two or three million men being sent abroad to fight in a quarrel in which our interest was purely altruistic, let us ponder the fact that in order to send an army after a Mexican bandit, although this army was operating in company with the forces of the de facto government of Mexico, we had to strip our country of regular soldiers until we did not have enough left to patrol the border. The Mexican affair, by the way, offers the best possible example of the needs that this country should deal with things and not merely with words. For some years, Mexico has stood to us much as the Balkan Peninsula with its weak and turbulent states once stood to Europe. Success or failure in our Mexican policy is no mere local matter. If in this place our foreign policy fails, it means general failure. The problem is not primarily a military one, although now, unfortunately, our failure to grapple with it intelligently and in terms of fact may well mean that there may have to be a military prelude to the real settlement. The settlement itself will come only when we make up our minds to render constructive and distant interested service on a common sense basis as we so successfully did in Cuba. We are continually told that we have kept out of war with Mexico, that we have been at peace with Mexico. Yet the total number of Americans killed in Mexico, whose names have been published, leaving out of consideration a large number whose names have not been published, exceeds the number of Americans killed in the war with Spain. I do not care by what name they call this. Perhaps we have not been at war with Mexico, but twice we have been at war with Mexico, and the Mexicans have been industriously at war with us to the extent of repeatedly killing our men, women, and children, and repeatedly insulting our flag. Under these circumstances, anyone can, of course, if it is of any comfort, say that we waged peace with Mexico, whereas we waged war with Spain. But the net result has been that the war with Spain cost less in life and property to both sides than our peace with Mexico has been costing. And that when the war with Spain was through, it was settled. And as a result, greater peace and prosperity came to Cuba, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico than they had ever in all their previous history known. Whereas the peace with Mexico continues to rage with unabated ferocity, with all the accompaniments of murder and violence, no solution is in sight and things have steadily grown worse instead of better. Surely, the utter inadequacy of our army must have been made evident to every thinking man by what has occurred on the Mexican border. After tame submission to innumerable injuries, one bandit raid was so flagrant that our army followed the raiders. The army was in such condition that the immediate pursuit, which would have ensured prompt success, could not be undertaken. And after over a month had passed by, and after well nigh our entire mobile army had been called upon, we were still entirely unable to deal adequately with the situation. Remember that a month covered the time from the opening of the Great European War to the Battle of the Marne. Remember that if a disaster happened to our Navy, a month would be sufficient for any one of several of the great old world military powers without subtracting from its army a force whose loss would be in any way felt at home to land in San Francisco or New York, a force five times as great as our mobile army. In actual practice, we have been unable within six weeks to gather enough troops to cope with the situation created by Pancho Villa's raid. Think deeply, friends, what this means and the impotence it reveals for meeting any kind of serious assault 
made on our shores by any military power of the old world. And remember that this war has shown that save in the teeth of a navy of great size and, it, and uh, at the highest point of efficiency, the ocean is a highway for the rapid transport of troops. It is short-sighted folly of the most sinister kind not to provide at once, immediately, for a regular army of a quarter of a million men, in order that we shall have within our own limits a mobile army of 125,000 men so constantly trained and maneuvered that inside of a week they could be concentrated in the highest condition of fighting efficiency at any point of our border or coastline. Relatively to the population of the country, this army would be no larger than the Chicago police force is to the city of Chicago. My proposition no more smacks of militarism than does the Chicago police force. I am asking only for a small regular army which shall be first class in point of efficiency. Remember always that there is no real value in half preparedness. To prepare a little but not very much is just like trying to put out a fire a little but not a great deal. If you want to build a bridge across a river, you build it for the whole distance. If you only build it halfway, you might as well have it leave it unbuilt. To increase the armed forces of a nation a little, but not much, leaves the situation, from the standpoint of national defense, practically unchanged. The advocates of half-preparedness are no more loyal to the interests of this country than are the advocates of unpreparedness. As for the statement that preparedness incites war, it ranks on a par with that hoary falsehood which says that it takes two to make a quarrel. With the fate of Belgium before our eyes, no man, not willingly, willfully blind to the truth, can question that absolutely good conduct, absolute peacefulness, absolute devotion to industry, and the possession of a good government and the doing of justice at home and abroad, all put together, do not by one moment delay or in the smallest degree work to prevent an attack from a powerful militaristic nation outside. If there has been failure of military preparedness on the part of the attacked nation, and if the militaristic nation thinks it advantageous to make the attack. Preparedness is like fire insurance. There are individuals so wicked that they insure their houses for the purpose of setting fire to them. Likewise, there are nations which prepare in order to commit aggression on other nations. But the first fact does not alter the desirability of fire insurance for honest men, nor does the second fact alter the desirability of preparedness for self-defense on the part of peaceful and well-behaved nations. The preparedness of a big, highly efficient navy and a small, highly efficient regular army will meet our immediate needs and can be immediately undertaken. But ultimately, and to meet our permanent needs, I believe with all my heart in universal training and universal service on some modification of the Swiss and Australian systems adapted to the needs of our American life. Such training would not merely, indeed, perhaps not primarily, be a benefit from the military standpoint, although the good from this standpoint would be inestimable. It would not take our young men away from their life work. It would, on the contrary, help to fit them for their life work, make them more valuable, social, and industrial, train them to order, discipline, the power to enjoy and make use of self-respecting liberty, the power to cooperate with their fellows, it would be an antiseptic to militarism. For Switzerland and Australia are the least militaristic and most democratic of commonwealths. 
It would be done in the schools and then by four to six months work in the field when they leave the schools. It would mean only extending the system already admirably applied in Wyoming. With such a system, we should be guaranteed forever against the kind of conflict which is known as a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. We should never have a war unless the people who were to fight it deliberately determined upon it. It would be a war waged by the people for the people. As I have said again and again, and as I cannot too often repeat, I advocate this preparedness as a means to secure peace and to avoid war. A good mother wrote me the other day that she feared preparedness because she did not wish her boys, quote, to go up against the cannon, unquote. Now the one perfectly certain method of ensuring that her boys and all the other boys in this country shall go up against the cannon is to persuade foreign powers that they can attack us with impunity because our mothers have refused to let their boys be trained efficiently. I abhor unjust and wanton war. More than that, if there were a great war, my sons would go, and probably all my young kinsfolk would go. If the war became serious enough, I would have to go. It would be the bitterest grief to me to see my sons go, as every father here will understand. All that I honorably could do would be done to help the country out of war, so that my sons would not have to go. But I would far rather have them go than have them stay at home under conditions which would make their children ashamed of them and ashamed of being Americans. Our foreign policy should be managed on the basis of showing courteous regard for the rights and the feelings of others, and a refusal to be irritated over or take offense at trifles. But at the same time, an equally courteous but resolute insistence upon our own rights. Insolence and disregard of the rights and feelings of others may embroil us in war, but weakness and conveying the impression that we fear others are even more certain to do so in the long run. Strength, courage, and the courteous doing of justice tend to avert war. Weakness, and above all, weakness combined with bluster, tend in the long run to make it inevitable. We stand for the peace which comes as a matter of right to the just man armed, and not for the peace which is purchased by the coward at the cost of abject submission to wrong. The peace of cowardice ultimately leads to a war as the end of a record of shame. Industrial service is essential. There can be no full preparation for military service unless there is industrial preparation. Few of our people have even the slightest idea of the enormous amount of supplies of every kind necessary to carry on modern war. Uh, the quantities of food, clothing, rifles, cannons, shells, cartridges, medical supplies, automobiles, railway cars, high explosives. If the supply of raw materials gives out, if skilled laborers fitted for manufacture are not to be found, if the deliveries of goods are not made with the promptness and certainty only to be obtained through perfectly organized industrial machinery, the result is that the loss would have to be made good by an incalculable wastage of life among our soldiers. Unless our industries are highly efficient, and moreover are trained for this particular work in advance, the penalty will inevitably be paid in the shape of dreadful loss of life among our soldiers. Such a need cannot be met by government-owned and managed plants, although there should be some such to serve as checks and regulators. The need is to train, to educate, 
many business firms by means of giving them small orders in time of peace for the various things which the government would need in enormous quantities in time of war. There should be a survey of the producing resources of the country and the development and practical working out in time of peace of plans for minimum annual educational orders to be placed by the Army and the Navy with thousands of firms widely distributed geographically and the enrollment in time of peace of the skilled labor which is necessary to keep on the job in time of war. We shall need organized business in time of war just as in time of peace. Our duty is to encourage it but also to see that its activities are for the benefit of the whole country. The government should provide against excessive profit-making in time of war. We can only do this as a sequence uh, to uh, reasonable encouragement of the many private plants which in the event of war could be trusted to do, to do public business. These plants, through some such systems as the annual educational orders above referred to, could be made ready for efficient munitions work in time of war. The government encouragement could be also used to secure as one of its features those things for labor which it is most necessary to secure. Proper working and living conditions, and provision for insurance compensation against sickness, accident, and old age. Not one step has been taken by Congress to help secure these industrial conditions. Not one step has been taken to secure the nationalization of industry in time of war. The railroad business in particular insofar as interstate commerce and everything directly or indirectly connected with it is concerned, should be made a national matter with a national incorporation law and the whole power of regulation, which should itself be a part of a process of encouragement lodged in the Federal Commission. The purpose being to encourage the business in every legitimate way, while also seeing that it is managed in the interest of the public, no less than of the investors, managers, wage workers. We can have no national economic program until we make ourselves really a nation. National needs cannot be met by conflicting locality actions. This is the age of cooperation. Surely, if we really are a business people, this means that there should be cooperation and not hostility between the government and the mighty agencies through which alone modern business, especially international business, can be managed. Let the government regulate the corporations, but let this regulation be an incident of hearty cooperation with them to secure their well-being and also the well-being of those who work for them and of those for whom they work. Capital must be organized on a large scale just as labor must be organized on a large scale. But both forms of organization must justify themselves by showing that they are not only beneficial to themselves, but to the people as a whole. No form of government will survive unless it can justify its existence. Boasting about democracy won't make democracy succeed. We are the greatest democratic republic, and we are false not only to our own country, but to democracy everywhere, if we do not seriously endeavor to show by our actions and success. It was with us, the many men can make a nation as efficient as elsewhere. Nations have been made efficient by a few men. We must make America efficient within its own borders efficient to repel attack uh, from beyond its own borders, and yet a friend and not a menace to other peoples. We must make ourselves serviceable to democracy in the cause of popular rights and popular duties in national and also in international matters. A happy-go-lucky belief that we can become serviceable by combining sentimental speeches with selfish actions will bring us to futility. 
Serviceableness comes only through preparedness, in both the training and the service, through economic, social, and military efficiency, imply courage, sustained effort, clear vision, and the power for self-sacrifice. I speak for military preparedness. I speak for industrial preparedness. I speak for the performance of international duty, which can only come when we fit ourselves to do our duty to ourselves and when we have made up our minds never to make a promise to any other nation which cannot be kept, which ought not to be kept, and which will not be kept. I speak of all of this in the interest of national unity and manhood and of international peace and of the service to our country and of the world at large. It is our duty to secure justice and well-being at home, but we live in a fool's paradise if we think that we shall be permitted to secure such justice and well-being as the world now is, unless we are prepared to hold our own against all alien enemies. I appeal to the men of the West. I appeal to Americans everywhere to stand against the crass materialism which can show itself just as much in peace as in war. I appeal to our people to prepare in advance so that there shall be no hideous emergency which renders it necessary to submit to inordinate profit-making by the few simply because when the emergency comes, we must improvise at whatever cost the things that are for our sins we have failed to provide beforehand. We cannot afford to leave this democracy of ours inefficient. If we do, it will assuredly someday go down in ruin. We cannot afford to tolerate with cynical indifference the pork-barrel theories of government so dear to the hearts of politicians of the baser sort. With a wealth of billions of dollars and a population of 100 million, we cannot afford to be in a condition of utterly unstable social and industrial equilibrium, nor to see our sons grow up steeped in the spirit of mere selfish individualism. Without self-control or discipline or sense of cooperation or firmness of purpose, we have great individual capacity. This we must keep. But we must train it so that uh, we shall have great collective capacity, so that there may be that collective democratic power and discipline without which no great modern democracy can be permanently subsist. We must not only do away with sectionalism, but we must see that our land really is a melting pot of citizenship, and that all peoples who come here become Americans and nothing else. We have equally to dread the sleek, well-fed materialist whose be-all and end-all in life are ease and comfort, and the base, selfish man who thinks only of his individual aggrandizement, and the foolish, boastful, wordy sentimentalist who, with amazing ignorance, fancies that Americans armed only with words and successfully oppose strong and brutal men with rifles. Our national character is in the balance. Americanism is on trial. If we produce merely the self-seeking, ease-loving, duty-shirking man, whether he be a mere materialist or a mere silly sentimentalist, if we produce only the Americanism of the greater, um, of the grafter and the mollycoddle, and the safety first, get rich quick, peace at any price man, we will have produced an American faithful only to the spirit of the Tories in 1776 and the Copperheads of 1861, and fit only to vanish from the earth. Love of ease, 
shirking of effort and duty, unwillingness to face facts, the desire to comfort ourselves by words that mean nothing, all these spell worthlessness while our civilization lasts and spell also a speedy and an ignoble end of that civilization. In this tremendous crisis of the world, uh, if we think we can sit apart, do nothing, utter lofty platitudes, and devote ourselves only to money-making, we shall surely go down with a crash. I ask you of the West to take the lead in the effort for a robust and virile nationalism, fit and ready to cope with all possible dangers at home and abroad. I appeal to the spirit of sane common sense, which faces things as they practically are, and appeal also to that spirit of idealism which sees a great goal and struggles toward that goal. I ask for military preparedness and an arm to help the soul of the nation. I ask for it to quicken the national conscience, to help the national discipline. I ask that we prepare ourselves within. We cannot prepare ourselves within unless we also prepare against danger from without. You hate the waste and blood spilling of war. So do I. You cannot hate such waste and such blood spilling more than I do. The most lamentable of all the tragedies connected with blood spilling is the spilling of the blood of brave men too late to secure the end for which the blood is spilled. Under such conditions, there is no chance of triumph. The dreadful choice is between dying hopelessly for the right and yielding abjectly to triumphant iniquity. May we so act in the present that neither we ourselves nor our children's children shall ever in the future have to face so evil an alternative. We wish to secure peace, both for ourselves and for others. To do so, we must be strong and just, for weakness invites injustice at its own expense and is powerless to ward off injustice from others. I ask you to prepare so that we may secure peace for ourselves and for others, not the peace of cowardice, nor the peace of selfishness, but the peace of righteousness and of justice, the peace of brave men pledged to the service of this mighty democratic republic, and through that service pledged also to the service of the world at large. A rather lengthy speech, even by Theodore Roosevelt's stances, on national duty and international ideas, given this date, April 29th, the Illinois Bar Association of Chicago. Thanks again for your patience with uh, technical uh, issues this morning. Thanks for coming along for the ride uh, for Teddy Talks. Thanks for sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to seeing you here tomorrow for Teddy Talks. All the best from Medora, North Dakota, where Theodore Roosevelt said the romance of his life began. All the best. Goodbye. Good luck. See you tomorrow.